To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who were at ease of the contempt of the proud. And so we are climbing the Psalms, scaling the Psalms of ascent. They begin with Psalm 120. They end with Psalm 134. And as we scale this portion of God's Word, there are several things we always need to keep in mind. Uh, Several things we need to keep in view. Keep us on course. Keep us on the straight and narrow. First is this, we interpret the Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent in our case. We interpret these Psalms in the light of the cross. That is to say, as we study these Psalms, as we read them, uh, we're looking for the Lord Jesus. As a matter of fact, let me expand that. Whenever we open the Old Testament, we are looking for Jesus. You may be asking yourself, why am I emphasizing that? I'm emphasizing that because, regrettably, that isn't always the case today. Increasingly so, uh, the Old Testament has become terra incognita, unknown land, unknown territory for a lot of Christians. And uh, they're not convinced that they find Jesus there. Uh, Jeremy Walker, he's a Baptist pastor in England. He he likens this this current trend to to an art gallery an art gallery in which there are hundreds of portraits, and uh, an art gallery in which these portraits are only of one man. So hundreds of portraits, all of the same person, and all painted by the same artist. But this art gallery is divided into sections, and the one section is bright and clean and tidy and receives lots of visitors. The other section, though, is dark and gloomy and dusty and dirty, and it receives very few visitors. Why? Well, a while back, a rumor started to circulate that the early portraits of this man weren't as good as the later portraits. As a matter of fact, some people even began to suggest that it wasn't the same man in the portrait as what they saw in the older portraits versus the newer portraits. And so people stopped visiting that section of the art gallery. And it fell into disrepair. And the light bulbs would burn out and nobody would replace them. The cobwebs would grow and nobody would remove them. And the dust would build and build and build and no one would clean the place. Until eventually, people, people still knew, visitors to the art gallery still knew that section was there. But they no longer had any interest in visiting that section of the art gallery. They would all gravitate to that section which was bright and clean. And Jeremy Walker's point is simply this. Many of us as Christians, that's how we approach the Bible. Uh, We think it's divided into two sections. And many Christians today aren't convinced that Jesus is even found in the Old Testament. And even those few Christians who believe Jesus is found in the Old Testament... Sadly, they no longer know how to find him there. No longer know how to find him. 
That is a sad predicament, is it not? It's a sad commentary on the state of the church. We open the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and praise God, we find His Son, the Lord Jesus, if we look carefully enough and if we are trained to do so. And so we interpret the Psalms, and we do so in the light of the cross, looking for Jesus. The second thing to keep in view is this. We use these Psalms, all of them, but the Psalms of Ascent in particular, in order to live biblically, in order to live biblically. John Calvin wrote centuries ago that the Psalms are a mirror into the soul. And so we peer, we look, we gaze upon the Psalms, and we see our own reflection there. And we use them to shape our thoughts. We use them to understand our experiences. We use them to regulate our feelings. We use them to change our perspectives. As Christians, we desire, or at least, the very least, we ought to desire to think and feel and live biblically. Well, no better place to do that than in the Psalms and in the Psalms of Ascent. We use the Psalms to live biblically. Third thing to keep in view is this. We adopt the Psalms as our prayers. Many of us struggle to pray. We don't know what to pray for nor do we necessarily know how to pray. The Psalms are a wonderful prayer book. We can take these Psalms and adopt them as our prayers. That's one of the chief reasons they're actually there. They express God-glorifying desires. They express God-magnifying emotions. They express God-honoring thoughts. And they express God-exalting requests. The fourth thing to keep in view as follows. We follow the Psalms to God. The Psalms of Ascent in particular. We ascend them. We climb. And we are climbing to an objective. God. The Christian life. And please hear this and take it to heart. Because many of us fail in this regard, myself included. I'll confess it. The Christian life, the Christian journey is not about enthusiastic feelings. The Christian journey, the Christian life is not about grandiose experiences. The Christian life is about disciplined perseverance. We are running a race, a marathon. And we must stay focused. And God must be the object of our focus. We must look to Him. We look down, we look up, we look to the side, we look behind and we're in trouble. We veer from the path. We must stay focused on our objective, disciplined endurance, disciplined perseverance as we look to God. And so in Psalm 120, we were lamenting our distress right here. Psalm 121, we were looking to the hills. Psalm 122, we were delighting in God's house. We're ascending, we're climbing. Now in Psalm 123, we are looking directly to God. We are focused and focused on Him alone. Psalm 123 is divided in two sections. Very simple to find these sections. Skip down to verse 3. 
and find your way to the very middle, the center of that verse, and that tiny word, for, or because. That word divides the psalm into two sections. The first section begins at the start of verse 1. It goes to the middle of verse 3. We'll call that 3a. The second section of the psalm begins right there, 3b, with that word for or because, and continues to the end, verse 4. Two sections, very simple, very simple psalm. I'm going to complicate it for you. Actually, this is by way of clarification, not complication. What I'm going to do is I'm actually going to approach this psalm backwards. We're going to begin with the second section and then move to the first section. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he confuse us like that? In the first section, again, verse 1 to the middle of verse 3, the psalmist is praying. He is pouring out his soul to God. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. Middle of verse 3, the start of the second section, for, because. And so in the second section, what is he giving us? The reason why he is pouring out his soul to God. To really understand his prayer, the place to begin is what? With the context, why he is praying. The reason, what motivates him, what compels him, what stirs him to pour out his soul to God. And so we're going to begin with the second section, the psalmist's problem. And so read again with me from the middle of verse 3, 4. We have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Now really draw in close. Get your nose right in there. Some of you need to get your nose right in there. The eyes are failing, but get right in there. Three details. Three tiny little details, subtle details. Detail number one is this. In these verses, verses, the psalmist is speaking in the first person, plural. We, we, there it is, have had more than enough of contempt. Verse 4, our first person, plural. In other words, what is he describing? He is describing a collective experience. He's not speaking individually as an individual, although he's experiencing this. He is speaking on behalf of a group. He is speaking potentially on behalf of a family, perhaps a community, perhaps a town, perhaps the entire nation of Israel. That's the first detail you need to notice. Second detail is this. He identifies the cause of his suffering. He identifies the cause of his distress. He sums it up in two words. Again, at the end of verse 3, we have had more than enough of, here's word number one, contempt. And then we find the second word in verse 4, our soul has had more than enough of the scorn. And so he and this group, on behalf of whom he is speaking, they are the object of contempt. They are the object of scorn. They are the object of ridicule. They are facing and experiencing some kind of opposition. And this opposition is primarily vocal. It's verbal. The third tiny detail is this. He says, the psalmist makes it clear, that they have had more than enough. Verse 3. We have had more than enough. 
And in case we missed it the first time, verse 4, our soul, our soul has had more than enough. The verb, the term in the Hebrew means saturated, something that is saturated. And so you take a sponge, you throw that sponge in the water and you hold it under the water, it soon fills up. And when it is full, you can keep holding it there for another hour, for 24 hours. It's not taking on any more water, is it? Because what? It has reached the saturation point. That's how he's describing themselves. We have had more than enough. Now, I hope you're asking yourself, I've been asking myself this question for a long time, what's going on here? What is this man going through? What are these people going through? And here's one of the frustrations we don't know. God, in His infinite wisdom, the author of Scripture, has not seen fit to to explain to us or give us the exact cause. Some scholars think this psalm was penned after the restoration. So after Babylon invaded Judah, destroyed Jerusalem, raised the temple to the ground, took captives back to Babylon in the year, what was it, 536, a remnant returned. And they began to rebuild the city, rebuild the wall, rebuild the temple. And during that time, they were the object of such scorn. From whom? Those inhabitants, those foreigners who had begun to inhabit the land during their absence. And so this remnant, they were the object of scorn. They were the object of contempt. They were the object of ridicule as they were engaged in that tremendous, momentous reconstruction project. That's possible, but we simply do not, we do not know. But not knowing the circumstances, it doesn't affect things, our interpretation or application of this psalm. We can enter into it. We can empathize, to empathize. We can demonstrate compassion, compassion. Our hearts were full with the burden that these people felt as they were the object of this ridicule, this scorn, and this contempt. Have you ever been the object of scorn, the object of contempt, silent disdain, open hostility, blatant misrepresentation, seething rage, fierce opposition, calculating animosity, scathing ridicule? Cutting criticism. Have you ever been the object of contempt and scorn? I am no doomsday prophet, but I do call it like I see it. I'm a realist. As Christians here in the United States of America, we are on the cusp of entering an age in which, generally speaking, we will be the object of scorn. We will be. Believer, I pray, God, you're ready for it. We will be the object of scorn. It, the generation which is coming in this country of believers, I don't mean these Bible Belt believers. I mean believers, God-fearing, gospel-preaching believers. They will be the object, increasingly so, of scorn and contempt in this society. We see it already. I see it and I feel it already, whereby my position 
my position on just about every ethical issue in this country is now intentionally being labeled as hate. Have you noticed that? Friends, it's subtle, but it is designed. It is intentional. And so I speak out against vice. Well, that's hate. I speak up for life. What's well, hatred of women? I speak out because the Bible speaks out against the sin of homosexuality. Well, that's, that's hatred. And even that last discussion, that debate, as it is unfolding and has unfolded before our very eyes in our country, in our society, is extremely telling. It is interesting to see how the entire debate, the entire discussion is, and this is intentional, it is intentional, how it is being framed in these categories, tolerance versus intolerance, enlightenment versus ignorance, and love versus hate. And this is the road, the path we are going down. The Spirit of God can turn it all around. I pray God He does. I mean, the thing we need, the thing we've needed for a long time is a revival, a real revival. A return to Scripture, an outpouring of the Spirit of God, an infusion of the Spirit of God whereby we're humbled in our sin. Uh, you know, and, and from one angle, from one angle, I almost invite it, I almost invite it to trim some of the fat off of evangelicalism here in the United States of America. Trim some of the fat. We've grown somewhat obese. And the fat needs to be trimmed. And so on one hand, I invite it. On the other hand, I cower before it and what it might mean for the next generation or two down the road. And so we can enter into the psalmist's mindset as believers because we're getting a taste of it already. And many of you can enter into it given your experience in the workplace. Some of our students can enter into it given their experience in the college classroom where Christianity is often held up to absolute ridicule. Some of us can, can relate to the psalmist simply in the context of the home. The spouse who gives no support at all when it comes to the Christian faith. Not only is there no support, there's actually opposition. There's rebuke for reading Scripture. There's contempt for standing for truth. There's ridicule for prayer and devotion. We can enter into where this psalmist is at. And we can empathize with the problem. And contempt, scorn, they weigh so heavy. And they do such damage to the point where we can utter that cry. The psalmist's words, our soul has had enough, more than enough. Because contempt is always unreasonable. It is always undeserved. And it is always unjust. There's this problem. Now we're in a great position to understand his prayer. Do you see now why I was working backwards? Now we know the context. We know the framework. We know, we know what's going on in his mind. We know what has captured the affections of his heart. We know his status. We can empathize with him. We, we can feel it. And now we go back to verses 1 through 3 to hear his prayer. Let me read it again for you. To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid servant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till He has mercy upon us. 
Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Now his prayer, there you have it from the depths, from the pit of his soul. His prayer, we can get our minds around it. We can enter into it wonderfully by simply asking and answering three questions. That's all we need to do. Question number one is this. Where does this psalmist look? Where? Where does he look? By that, what we're after is simply this, the object, the object of his looking. Where does he look? Verse 1, he states it himself. To you, I lift up my eyes. Oh, this is beautiful. This is poetic. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. Now, there's biblical perspective, if ever I've seen it. There's a man who believes in the unrivaled sovereignty of God. And in the midst of his own distress, in the midst of his own despair, a soul which has had enough, he lifts up his eyes to the one who is enthroned in the heavens. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul is waxing eloquent, wonderful doxology, and he is worshiping the one who is over all, through all, and in all. All you grammarians are going to love this. The rest of you, buck up and tolerate it. We have three prepositions in that statement. God is in all. That is his essential presence. I am not using the term essential in terms of necessary, but as the old theologians used it, essential, a reference to his essence, his substance, his being. God is in all things. He is everywhere. And everything is in God. He is not limited to anything. He is not limited by anything. He transcends all things, permeates all things, because He is spirit in all things. But God is secondly through all things. And there we have a reference to His workings, what we call His providential presence, that God is working. He upholds everything. He is the principle of cohesion which holds this universe together. J.B. Lightfoot expressed it as follows. The reason, God alone is the reason why this universe is a cosmos instead of a chaos. God is the principle of cohesion. If God were to breathe in, friend, it all, goes, it all ceases to exist. It all disappears. It all evaporates. God holds and sustains Everything. I don't know how many breaths you've taken since you sat down there. Every breath, a manifestation and revelation of this wonderful truth. God is through all. He upholds. You don't move apart from God. He is the first cause. He is the first mover. All we see are the effects of His moving. We see the effects of His will. And Paul also celebrates in that verse, you'll notice I'm working backwards of Kind of like that today. He's not only in all, he's not only through all, he is over all, above all. He has chosen to reveal his glory in a special measure in heaven. And we celebrate this truth that he is over all, that is enthroned in the heavens from where he governs absolutely everything that happens. I love that years ago, didn't fully understand it at the time. I was wrestling with this truth, and I actually didn't really like it at the time. 
But by God's grace, the Spirit of God brought me this way, and I saw it more and more in Scripture. It was R.C. Sproul who said, do you know what the implication of that truth is? It is this. There is, no, there is not one random molecule in the entire universe. The molecules themselves do the bidding of God Almighty. He is over all, He is through all, and He is in all. Where does the psalmist look? Oh, Christian, understand this. Get this statement right here. Nothing else. That's okay with me. He looks up. He looks away from himself. He's been staring at his feet. He's no longer looking at his feet, kicking the ground. He is looking up. And he is reveling in this wonderful, tremendous, awe-inspiring, undeniable truth. That God is enthroned in the heavens, meaning what? It is there that he governs providence. It is there that he executes judgment. It is there that he dispenses mercy. And it is there that he hears prayer. Now, there are a couple of details there. We're still dealing with the first question. We're not moving on yet. Slow down. There are a couple of details. Minor, minor details. Subtle details but beautiful and extremely important that we dare not miss. The first is this. You've heard me say it, and you've read it there in verse 1. The psalmist lifts what? His eyes. That's beautiful. He lifts his eyes. He isn't speaking. That comes later. He hasn't vocalized or verbalized a word. He is simply looking, lifting his eyes. Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote, Beautifully, we need not speak in prayer. A glance of the eye will do it all. Oh, do you believe that? A glance of the eye will do it all. Watch some of the older couples. I nearly said someone's name, and they would have charged the pulpit. Good thing I didn't. Watch some of the older couples in our congregation, or older couples whom and you can define old however you want it, older couples whom the Lord has brought into your life and watch the glances they exchange. There are looks, there are glances, which if we try to put them into words, they would fill a small treatise. They communicate messages. There is understanding in the look. There is understanding in what is conveyed simply with the eyes. And the psalmist knowing this, he lifts up His eyes, God is intimately acquainted with our every look, our every squint, our every frown, our every tear, and yes, our every wrinkle. And our eyes express hope. Our eyes express desire. Our eyes express urgency. Our eyes express confidence. Again, hear the words of Spurgeon. Prayer is the burden of a sigh, the falling of a tear, the upward glancing of an eye when none but God is near. John Trapp, an old Puritan, he wrote the following. Praying by the glances of the eye rather than by words. Praying with the glances of an eye rather than by words. What does this mean? It means my afflictions have swollen my heart too big for my mouth. You ever been there? I know many of you have. 
my affliction, my distress, my trouble, whatever it might be, from there to there, has swollen my heart too big for my mouth. And so I pray by the glances of the eye rather than by words. Second precious, beautiful little detail here, also somewhat challenging. The psalmist is here speaking in the first person singular. Yes, I know, back to grammar, so important. Later in the psalm, I already mentioned it, he speaks in the first person plural. We, our, he's speaking on behalf of the whole. But in verse 1, he's not. To you, here it is, first person singular. I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. You see, here we have a personal application and a personal appropriation of truth. I can't believe for you, and you can't believe for me. I can't look up for you, and you cannot look up for me. I cannot lift up my eyes to the one who is enthroned in the heavens for you. And you cannot look up to the one with your eyes, raise your eyes to the one who is enthroned in the heavens for me. No, it is a collective problem. And the psalmist is seeking a collective solution and he's going to revert back to the first person plural, but this is telling, so telling, and we dare not miss it. He knows that in the final solution, in the final analysis, we must personalize this. There must be a personal application and appropriation of the truth. This God is mine. I believe in this God. I'm looking to this God. I trust in this God. He sets a wonderful precedent, wonderful example here for us as he opens this psalm where the emphasis must be, it's, it's on me and it is on me understanding the one whom I am addressing, the one to whom I am looking. It is me applying it personally that yes, he is enthroned in the heavens above and I understand, yeah, I understand what that means for my wife. Yes, I understand what that means for my friend. Yes, I understand what that means for that, my neighbor. I understand what this means for me in the context in which I find myself, in the struggles that I am experiencing, in the battles I am waging, in the distress and the affliction, and contempt, scorn, whatever it might be. I understand that it is my God who is enthroned in the heavens. It brings us to question number two. How does he look? We know where he looks. That's the object of his looking. Question number two, very simple, very obvious. How does he look? Here, what are we after? We're after the manner of his looking. Verse two, and he employs an analogy. Behold, verse two, as the eyes of servants... Look to the hand of their master as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress. Here's the comparison, the analogy. So our eyes, back to the first person plural, look to the Lord our God. Somewhat difficult for us to get. Why? Because we don't live in the world of slaves and masters, slaves and mistresses. That word is sorely abused in our day. In old English, a mistress, just the equivalent of a master. We don't live in that world anymore, do we? 
the world of slaves and masters. But what this psalmist is identifying is this relationship, a relationship between two individuals. On the one hand, you have this individual over here, and you have another individual over here. This individual is accountable to this one. Uh, This individual does the bidding of this one. And this individual, in this case the slave, the servant, looks to another for what? For direction. Looks to another for what? For approval. Looks to another for support. Looks to another for protection. That is the relationship, the analogy that the psalmist is employing. And he's saying, look, that's how we look. That is the manner of our looking. You think of a servant looking to his master, a maid servant looking to her mistress. It is one who depends upon another. It is one who does not act independently of another. It is one who is looking to another for support, encouragement, direction, protection. Our God, that is how we look to you. And so the psalmist is acknowledging, look, this is our distress, the contempt and the scorn we are experiencing. But here's the reality. We're just doing your business. We serve you. We're living for you. And so he looks to his master. In other words, this actually isn't even really about me. It is about you. And it is for you to act. It is for you to protect. It is for you to support, you to deliver, you to encourage. And so he looks with dependence upon God. So important we do this, so important we learn this, because it will safeguard us. It will protect us from one of the greatest threats in the Christian walk, that threat being bitterness and the grip of bitterness and the havoc it causes in the life of a believer when affliction does set in, things don't go our way. We're surrounded by opposition. We experience distress of one shape, size, or form, or another. And we are tempted always to what? To bitterness. Uh, bitterness is like mercury, not the planet. Metallic mercury. You know, you find them in barometers and thermometers. From what I understand, just a few drops, just a few drops of, of, of mercury, metallic mercury, when exposed to the air, it evaporates, and so it infiltrates the air. Just a few drops is enough to inf- infiltrate and contaminate an entire room. 2004, Nevada, middle, middle school. I don't know how this boy got his hands on it, this student, but a quarter cup, whatever that is, of, of metallic mercury, brought it to school. It wasn't for show and tell. He was just showing his friends. After one day of walking around the school with this metallic mercury, he had infected, I don't know how many school buses, how many classrooms. I think it was over 50, 60 kids. Their clothes were contaminated. It cost the government, the state government, I think it was $100,000 to clean up the contamination. That's what bitterness does. It contaminates. It seeps into every fiber of our being. And it distorts. It impairs, it weakens, and it torments. And the only remedy for bitterness is what? To have our eyes fixed on the master, our master. And understand we are but doing his bidding. Our fights are actually his fights. Our struggles are his struggles. Our callings are his callings. And we look to him like a servant looks to his master. We trust in our master's providence. We hope in our master's goodness. 
We rest in our master's justice. We look to our master how reverently, obediently, expectantly, submissively, continuously, confidently, and the moment I say it, you're going to wish I hadn't, patiently, oh, irked me just to get it out, patiently. Oh, we've been majoring on the minors. That is minor details today. Let me just point you to another little minor detail. And yes, we need to learn this right at the end of verse 2. So our eyes look to the Lord, our God, period. No, no. What's the next tiny little word? Till. Not a till in a store. It means until he has mercy upon us. And so we look to our God, and we keep looking, and we keep looking, and we keep looking, and we keep looking, patiently, expectantly. We wait until He has mercy upon us. Oh, but the psalmist, you see where his hope is fixed. Yes, he must wait, and how agonizing. We hate it, waiting. Oh, we have such impatience and we want deliverance now, today, right now. And why does he do this? And we don't always understand why he does this. But so many times his answer is simply this. Wait. Wait. And look at the psalmist's confidence. So our eyes look to, and here's the first mention of the divine name. The Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, meaning what? Yahweh. It is his divine name. I am who I am, which emphasizes what? Always, wherever you find it in Scripture. What does his divine personal name emphasize? It stresses the fact that God is eternal. He is without beginning. He is without end. He is immortal, meaning what? He is above and he transcends the succession of time. Therefore, he is what? He is immutable. That is simply unchangeable. And because he is unchangeable, he is what? He is faithful. And so the psalmist looks. Our eyes look to the Lord, our God. And yes, at times we must wait till he has mercy upon us. John Calvin expressed that sentiment beautifully in these words. It is sweet. It's not my word. That's his word. It is sweet. Let me repeat it a third time because 99% of us don't believe this, myself included. It is sweet to wait upon a covenant-keeping God. Wow. I just got to pause and just, really? Let me really. It is sweet to wait upon a covenant promise-keeping God because of that covenant. He will show mercy to us, but we may have to wait for it. God has his times, and God has his seasons, and we must wait until it comes. For the trial of our faith, our blessed Lord may for a while delay, but in the end, the promise will be fulfilled. That's the answer. The question number two, how does he look? The manner of his looking. Question number three, we're in the midst of his prayer. Why does he look? 
Here, what are we after? The focus. The focus of his looking. And he's already alluded to it with that statement at the end of verse 2, till he has mercy upon us. But now we really have it in verse 3 because he repeats it twice. Here's the focus. This is why he is looking. Have mercy upon us. There's the divine name again. O Lord, covenant-keeping God, promise-keeping God. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy. God promises to dispense mercy. As a matter of fact, God always dispenses mercy upon His children. He always dispenses mercy upon His people. But here's the reality and here's the thing we must never lose sight of. Sometimes when He dispenses mercy, He does so how? By delivering us from the cause of our trouble. Sometimes, at times, how does He answer that prayer, have mercy on us? He does so by delivering us, rescuing us, removing us from the cause of trouble. Now, here's the part you don't want to hear. I don't want to hear. Sometimes, at times, he answers that prayer and he is merciful and dispenses mercy upon us. How? By giving us strength to persevere in the midst of the trouble. Did you get it, friend? Do you grasp it? He always hears the prayer. He always answers the prayer. And he always does so in one of two ways. He either rescues, removes, delivers us from the cause of trouble. And he does this in accordance with infinite wisdom, infinite power, and infinite goodness. Or he does so by strengthening us in trouble. Delivering us from trouble, strengthening us in trouble. God revives when He strengthens us in the midst of trouble. How does He do that? He revives our sense of His distinguishing love. I used that phrase last Sunday, and I repeat it without apology this Sunday. It's beautiful. He revives our sense of His distinguishing love. I am not speaking of God's common love for His creatures. I am speaking of His special love for His people. I am not referring to God's common grace, His love for all. I am referring to His special love as revealed in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the object of His eternal delight. And so as believers, if you're an unbeliever, I'm not speaking to you. I'm not. This does not apply to you. I don't say that to offend you. I say that simply because it's true. And you must understand this. That my message to you, if you're an unbeliever, is repent and believe. I have no words of consolation for you. I have no words of comfort to bring you. The starting point for you is you must recognize who is your Lord and Master. You must prostrate yourself before the King. You must kiss the King lest He become angry. You must repent of your sin and beg for mercy and forgiveness. From the Lord Jesus Christ, I am speaking to God's children, those who are in, not outside Christ, those who are in Christ. And this wonderful truth of His distinguishing love, that in Christ He loved us before the foundation of the world when He chose us. In Christ He loved us before the foundation of the world when He predestined us for adoption as sons. In Christ He loved us when He sent His Son and His Son willingly came as a man to serve among men. 
and to give his life ultimately as a payment for our sin upon Calvary's cross. Where is Jesus in this song? Do you know anyone who has ever experienced the kind of scorn and contempt that the Lord Jesus experienced? These are the words of the Lord Jesus. My heart is full. I have had more than enough. I am the object of their contempt, the contempt of the proud. I am the object of their spite and scorn, those who are at ease. He quotes Psalm 69, another psalm, isn't it in John 15? They have hated me without a cause. If anyone ever cried these words, if anyone ever prayed these words, it was Jesus Christ, who was the object of man's enmity, undeserved, unfair, uncalled for, who knows exactly what it is like to experience contempt and scorn, to have more than enough. And to have no place to turn but upward. And to pray to his own heavenly father for mercy, for deliverance. That deliverance comes at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friend, do you understand why he went through all that? Do we understand why he experienced? He, he, he made himself, disposed himself to be the object of such scorn and contempt. The hymn writer captures it wonderfully. Bearing shame. And scoffing rude, in my place condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he, full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. There is God's distinguishing love poured out at Calvary's cross through His Son, the Lord Jesus. And when we find ourselves in the midst of distress, we cry out for mercy. And yes, at times God delivers us from the cause of our trouble. If He does so, it is an expression of His mercy. And at times, God chooses to strengthen us, fortify us in trouble. And he does so as an expression of his mercy. And which, whatever he does, mercy, we experience it. This mercy comes to us fast and full and furious through Calvary's cross. Where the Lord Jesus himself bore our contempt, bore our scoffing, bore our ridicule. I read from Spurgeon last week. Let me read it again. These words have been on my mind just about every day this week. Oh, the Christian knows no change with regard to God. He may be rich today and he may be poor tomorrow. He may be sick today, well tomorrow. He may be happy today and distressed tomorrow. But there is no change with regard to his relationship with God. If God loved me yesterday, he loves me today. And I am neither better nor worse in God than I ever was. Let prospects be blighted. Let hopes be blasted. Let earthly joys be withered. I have lost nothing of what I have in God. That is how he dispenses mercy. 
in strengthening us and in comforting us in the midst of trouble. He warms. Let me conclude with this thought. He warms our faith. He warms, kindles, and warms. It kindles, ignites, and warms our faith beside the fire of His distinguishing love. Our Father, we take this psalm as our prayer this Lord's Day, and we beg you to have mercy upon us. All that we receive from you, every good and perfect gift that descends from above, every circumstance and condition is to some fashion, some degree, an expression of your mercy and for the accomplishment of your great design and plan to glorify your name through us. We revel in this. We marvel at this. And we derive great comfort from this. And pray that your name might be blessed among us. In the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.